Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> <laughs> the very first immigration law in this country in 1790 said that to be a U.S. citizen, you had to be a free white person. And that was good law up until the 1950s. And it was, in fact, the practice of the country until the 1960s when the Immigration and Nationalization Act was passed in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement. So all of this is a piece. So this is just the latest wave of these attacks. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and unfortunately, your faithful host, Pastor Josh Bertram, can't be with us today, but um, instead, we have with us Steve Phillips this week. He is a national political leader, best-selling author, and columnist. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority, and the newly released national best-selling book, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. He's also a columnist, co- columnist for The Guardian and The Nation and an opinion contributor to The New York Times and is the host of Democracy and Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast on politics. So welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, and and uh, Steve, I I, I wanted to um, kind of just first start off by um, acknowledging and offering our condolences to the passing of your wife, um, Susan Sandler. Um, she is a person who I was unaware of actually prior to having you on the show, but a person I'm glad to have gotten to know better by reading about her accomplishments and advocacy for social justice. But um, I I did want to give you an opportunity to. Um, tell our audience a little bit about who she was as a person, and then maybe talk about how you're continuing the work that that she started. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much um, for that. And that's the picture of her um, of my shoulder. Um, you know, I put on uh, Facebook after she passed a picture from our wedding and said, you know, so what we had was a love story for the ages. We transcended barriers of race, class, and religion, and found each other and forged a life and set about trying to change the world. And she um, was very passionate about social justice. I mean, she's a, she was a white Jewish woman who was very passionate about social justice, racial justice, economic justice, and that really is what um, bonded us and really used her all of her position and um, status and um, privilege and power in the world to try to bring about greater equality. Her family were very successful business people and philanthropists themselves. They helped to create Center for American Progress, um, ProPublica. And so she became a philanthropist herself, helped to create the Learning Policy Institute, was a real leader in education, educational equity work, and was and, and so also created a Susan Sandler Fund, which is a racial justice focused, um, a philanthropic fund that invests primarily in civic engagement organizations run by women of color. She had written a medium post about her philanthropic philosophy, which was really about changing about power over persuasion and changing the people in power more than trying to change their minds. 
She was the first and largest donor in 2007 to Barack Obama. She was the first donor to Stacey Abrams in 2012, 10 <laughs> years ago. And so I think that's reflective of the work that she had done is partnering with, empowering, connecting with people of color working for uh, social, economic, and racial justice. And um, that is the legacy she will leave. And that's what I'm trying to carry on to the best of my ability. Yeah, th thanks for that. Um, so so I guess what what um, what was the catalyst for you to become so active in social racial justice? Yeah, well, that's also, frankly, why I, I was, you know, excited to join you on this podcast. And so, um, my, is a combination of, uh, a long, a lifelong intrinsic interest in electoral politics and a lifelong connection to an interest in, uh, civil rights and all of that in the tradition of the progressive faith-based um, uh, work. And so we literally, I grew up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. I like to say I was literally a child of the civil rights movement. Is that we were the first uh, family uh, to live on our, our block, Cleveland Heights. We desegregated the neighborhood. They would not sell the house to my parents in 64 uh, because they were black. You had to get a white civil rights lawyer, Byron Krantz, uh, to buy the house and then deed it over to them. My mom slept in her clothes. She was afraid the house would get firebombed. And um, my brother was the first black student in local elementary schools. And one of my first memories was going to see Martin Luther King. My dad took me to see Martin Luther King when I was like three or four when he came to, came to Cleveland, Ohio. So I had that. And then, you know, kind of the civil rights piece always. I read all the biographies of Martin Luther King in the local elementary school. So I had that kind of background. And I always had an intrinsic interest in electoral politics. I think we had think that some people are like into gardening. I was into electoral <laughs> politics, right? And my next door neighbor, Art Brooks, ran for state legislature when I was like eight years old. I remember going to the victory party next door and kind of like getting the bug about electoral mm -hmm. politics. And then all of that in the context of the the well, particularly the black faith tradition. And so my grandfather was a minister for 50 years at Glenville uh, Church of God in Greater Cleveland. Uh, my parents were both involved in Church of God. They met at the Church of, uh, uh, Church of God campground in West Middlesex, Pennsylvania. And that was always a big part of my upbringing as well. So you take those strands of, uh, you know, faith-based family and tradition, civil rights uh, uh, movement, and electoral politics. And so that when Jesse Jackson ran for president in 84, I was 20 years old, and it spoke so deeply to me in terms of all of those different elements. And here you have somebody who was there uh, with Dr. King at the time that he was killed and has carried on that tradition, running for president in terms of the electoral piece. And then all of that wrapped in uh, religious and, and faith metaphor and language. It just spoke to me very, very, very deeply and particularly as a 20-year-old really galvanized my um, – um, like I say, I've been trying to build a small R rainbow ever since. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because um, 
So uh, I, I, I was never really close to my dad, but my dad was born in 1928 in Oklahoma. And um, I, you know, I've kind of gone through sort of this round of genealogy stuff and like it's super difficult, especially if you're a person of color uh, <laughs> to try to like trace your genealogy. But, but like, you know, there, there are certain points along his life where I'm like, man, I really wish he were around. He's, he's passed since, but you know, I really wish he was around. Cause I'd love to ask him about, you know, like the Tulsa massacre or, you know, some of the other, these other events that he would have remembered right. and he would have been alive for. And, um, you know, he married, uh, my mom, um, I think early seventies or something like that. My, my mom is an Asian woman. So she was born in Vietnam. Um, you know, and, and he probably would have had some of the same, difficulties, um, that, that you're speaking of. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's weird just, just to kind of hear you talk and, and, and also just, uh, you know, for me just to kind of relate that my dad might've gone through something similar, but, um, but anyways, change, changing the topic, go, 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 going to Martin Luther King, um, you know, he, he reminds us, you know, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And, and I'm curious on your thoughts about that because it seems um, that that arc is more like a horseshoe, at least now. And like, and according to you know uh, political science and popular discourse, there's this idea called the horseshoe theory, um, where it's almost like you go so far left, you go so far right, and they're basically the same thing. It's like uh, you know Republicans talking about um, you know being very anti-Russian. Or, you know, and and whatnot and anti-war. And it's like that's sort of the sentiment that those on the far left had, uh, you know, several decades ago. Um, so I'm, I'm curious on what what happens when the arc of, you know, the moral universe becomes a horseshoe or or maybe there's an argument that it's not really a horseshoe. It really is just like a, like a rainbow or an arc or something. Yeah, I, I would argue more the, the that it's not a horseshoe uh, or at least. It has not yet been a horseshoe. <laughs> way to actually put it that um, you know, and so I wrote this you know latest book. My fundamental premise is that the Confederates have never stopped fighting the Civil War to this mm. day, and that is continuing on. And so I went back through all these different parts of history to really be able to um, look at and 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 understand and make that argument which puts the current moment in more perspective. And then in January, I had the chance to go to Virginia, went to Richmond, Virginia. Oh, that's where we're at. And what's that? I said, I said Richmond, Virginia is where we're at. Oh, you're in mm -hmm. Richmond? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So I was there in January, <laughs> and then we went to the library, and they have all of these original documents from the Civil War period. They've got a register, handwritten mm -hmm. register of people being sold and what their names were and how much they were actually sold for. And so just as well as looking at the newspapers, which was fascinating to me. So you see the newspapers after Lincoln's election. As I try to make the point to describe to people that the Civil War didn't start out as a Civil War. It started out with seceding from the Union. Mm -hmm. And the seceding from the Union began after a presidential election in which the candidate backed by black people won and the other, the losing side refused to accept the results. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at it that way, you start to see this. Thing. Um, so, but fundamentally, it's 
they used we used to literally be in slavery and we were sold and the regular and they would just write down the names in a ledger mm-hmm. and i've seen that there were regular lynchings where they would drag people out and string them up from trees and that was just part of how this country functioned and when you look at it in that context as bad as things are or get or that we face it's not that and so you you, and you combine that as well with the um i think we underappreciate the accomplishments that we have made and so the and actually the full arc and so you look at georgia the hayes tilden compromise in 1877 which basically gave the south back to the slave owners was brokered by the senator from Georgia, um, John Brown Gordon. That so then you take that kept us in uh, subjugation for almost a hundred years. And it was civil rights movement led by in part by Martin Luther King, out of Georgia, and then in 2021, the pastor who preaches in the church where Martin Luther King was the pastor, Ebenezer Baptist Church, Raphael Warnock, runs for and wins the seat in the United States Senate, that same seat that had been the one that had uh, brokered the uh, uh, abandonment of Reconstruction, and in the process flips control of the entire United States Senate so that then trillions mm. of dollars can go out to the American people mm. um, in terms of investment and COVID relief and climate and all these different pieces. So when you look at it in that sweep, it I see it as an arc still. I don't think mm. that we – there's a lot that's intense and bad and da- – there's a lot that's dangerous in terms of the moment that we're at. But I still feel like that we're in a profoundly better place than we've been historically. Yeah, that that, that- – that actually makes me feel a little bit better uh, because like, you know, when I, when I look at, you know, the political landscape, especially as it applies to people of color, you know, you're, you're seeing things that just makes you want to like, you know, it's like the face palm emoji, you know, you're like, what the heck? Uh, especially when you hear conversations about CRT, you know, I mean, um, I mean, Personally, I feel a lot of the people that use the term CRT don't have a clue of what it really means. Um, and and we we did a whole series on CRT. We brought in some professors from Yale and Berkeley to talk about it. And we even brought in some counterpoints, like uh, this gentleman by the name of James Lindsay, just to kind of make an argument to kind of just balance the conversation a little bit. And, you know, when we see things like what's happening in Florida, you know, they're they're banning certain subjects, you know, from an AP African-American studies curriculum, like exploring Africa's geographic diversity. Like, okay. Uh, So like, I'm curious on, you know, what are the ramifications of that um, maybe short-term and long-term, you know, on sort of the, the body politics and even just for people's awareness of what, you know, minorities, um, you know, have to endure in this country. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. 
We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Yeah, well, I think first it's important to understand, again, none of this is new, mm-hmm. right? That it was illegal to teach enslaved people to read. Mm-hmm. So we took a look at that context. There's been a long, uninterrupted, um, and I one of the, I talk in the my book about there's this consistent Confederate battle plan and with multiple components. And one of the components is distort public opinion. Mm-hmm. And so the whole, they have entirely and successfully, I would argue, rewritten the history of the Civil War and of the Confederacy. And that as part of that effort, uh, most prominently is the writing and then making the movie Gone with the Wind, which can entirely transform the conception of what was, in fact, white supremacist mass murderers mm-hmm. and trans uh, transforming them into, uh, you know, da- dashing leading men and attractive leading women in, in this movie that people feel so good about it. And so the, all of that is about the glorification of white nationalism and the preservation of this concept that this should be and is fundamentally a white country and everything else is um, illegitimate. And so that has been the – and so that, that's the essence of these attacks on CRT. It's not they're attacking CRT. They're defending the concept of – that this is a white country and the efforts around white nationalism and, frankly, white supremacy. The very first immigration law in this country in 1790 said that to be a U.S. citizen, you had to be a free white person. Mm. And that was good law up until the 1950s. And it was, in fact, the practice of the country until the 1960s when the Immigration and Nationalization Act was passed in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement. So all of this is a piece. And so this is just the latest wave of these attacks. I don't think, I think the biggest danger is the miseducation of white people who will not understand the the bases and the nature of inequality, uh, to the extent that people benefit from and are complicit in a system that perpetuates this level of inequality. But I think, I mean, this country is 40, 41% people of color. And this is the, you know, the point I was trying to make in my first book, Brown is the New White. And there is, and has always been, a meaningful minority of whites who want this to be a multiracial country. And so you take that grouping, which is around the third to 40% of whites, and connect that with people of color. That's the majority of people in the country. And so all these attacks, I don't think, are going to have much impact on that constellation because people want to know their own history. People want to see their own stories reflected. We saw this with the uh, both the success and then the enthusiasm around the movie, well, like different movies, Black Panther, Everything Everywhere All at Once. People from these communities want their stories told, mm-hmm. and they want to understand their histories and stories. And, you know, I feel like this is, uh, you know, aggressive, but I hope ultimately futile attempts to um, uh, suppress the tr- true multiracial reality 
um, of this country and its history. Mm, yeah, I, and, and and I wonder, like, with the death of of George Floyd, um, for me, it seemed like a, a moment in history that, um, I don't know, like separated the wheat from the chaff um, in the sense that you really got a chance to see where people are at um, kind of along the, the, the racism spectrum, if you will. Um, because um, I mean, I had people, I, I don't know if this is the same with, with you, but I, I, I had uh, white friends that, that would send me texts or messages or emails or phone calls saying, Oh, okay. Like we get it now. We get it. You know, like what, what can I do? You know, how can I be an ally? And, and for me, it was like, like it, it number one, it was just weird. Cause I'm like, I, I don't know, like <laughs> vote, you know, <laughs> just, just, just vote, but vote, uh, for people that, you know, believe in social justice, uh, racial equality. Um, and, and it was just, I don't know, it was, it was shocking. Like even my, my, my co-host, um, that couldn't be here, you know, he even was like, he put up uh, stuff on like his social media, like Black Lives Matter and stuff like that, you know, and and he got attacked. I mean, my, my, my co-host is a white guy um, who who has a family lineage that dates back to the Confederacy. <laughs> like it's something I love to, to give him crap about all the time. But um, but even, you know, he got attacked as a white guy because people in his congregation are like, what are you doing? You know, like what, what, what do you know? That, that's a, that's a terrorist group, you know, like you can't, you can't put that stuff on your, on your social media. I'm not going to your church anymore. Um, so, so I, I, I'm curious to kind of get your, your take on the importance of that period of time when the country, the world, I should say, actually was, was recognizing that social justice is, is so important. Yeah, no, it's, um, I need to find out which comedian was this. Was this um, uh, comedian on Netflix and all those YouTube clips? Right, Netflix is a joke, and he was saying, um, "says you know the bar is so low because all we're saying is Black Lives Matter, just that, <laughs> just that they matter." Right? And so, it's but true. that's so controversial <laughs> for people. What is the opposite? Yeah, that yeah, they yeah. don't matter, right? And so, is that really what we're having a conversation about? So, I think that the, I mean, from a optimistic standpoint, um, and less cynical standpoint, it did reveal the breadth of potential support. Um, for racial equality. And so and it's interesting if you look at the whole sweep of history. So there's always been a co- close to a consensus that racism is wrong. But the problem has been that nothing is ever considered racist or like <laughs> what people would actually. And that um, Ta-Nehisi Coates had this uh, call, uh, essay he wrote where he says, and this is, who does a guy have to lynch around here to get called a racist? Right? <laughs> and you see it in the Supreme Court in all these different, you know, and so we passed 13th, 14th, 15th, 15th Amendments, ending slavery, uh, calling for equal protection, calling for the voting rights um, protections. And then the court narrowing down, narrowing down, say, yeah, that's, you can't do that, but it doesn't apply here, and it doesn't apply there, and it doesn't apply to 
public uh, transportation where you can have separate but equal. And so it's the same kind of dynamic as that. And so I think the number of people who are willing to entertain that systemic racism exists um, was expanded at that time period. Because first of all, how can you, the power of the video evidence was um, visceral. And I think that that's what galvanized and tapped the best in people mm-hmm. and allowed that to come out and flourish. And there's a, there was a poll the New York Times had, um, it was by um, CIFIS Analytics, they'd done showing support for Black Lives Matter by racial group. And it peaks in like June, July, 2020, after the <laughs> killing of George Floyd. And it's sometimes gone, it's gone, somewhat gone back down as well. So that's the more sober reality of it is that the uh, duration of that commitment and interest has waned and waned fairly quickly. And so you have all these different like corporations and foundations who have made all these grand pronouncements around, we're going to do this, you know, $100 million anti-racist philanthropic initiative. And then a number of them have fallen by the wayside or not happening or been watered down, et cetera. And so um, that's the more sober part of it. But I guess big picture, it suggested the potential uh, pool of support for this concept that this is a multiracial country for the, uh, you know, uh, uh, issue of ending or addressing systemic racism is potentially bigger than we may have thought, but it's also um, can be fairly fleeting. Yeah. And, and, and you, you, you brought up something that I think I've personally struggled with where, um, you know, like how do you define racism? Because like, it, it seems like that there's a, there's a lot of people that would, would say, oh, sorry if you hear my dogs in the background. Uh, the uh uh there there seems to be a lot of like racist adjacent type of behavior um but to call somebody straight up racist it seems like you got to have all these qualifiers to it's like oh okay well they said this okay check okay they did this check you know oh they believe this check okay yep that is 100 racist and i don't think that really exists i mean when like so i i grew up in southern california um, I went to public school in LA. Um, when I was in third grade, I had a teacher um, ask the class, like, what do we want to be when we grow up? You know, and and I remember a lot of the the students, and it's weird, it's like this this moment this moment has been seared in my memory. I don't remember anything else about third grade, but this one moment, kids in a class were like, Yeah, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a doctor. I remember saying I wanted to be president. And the teacher said, You can't be president because you're black. Wow. And and at the time, I just I was like, oh, OK, like what well, the teacher said it, you know, <laughs> like, and right, I didn't right. I didn't have a framework or I didn't have a place to really put that just that. OK, she's the teacher and she told me I can't be president because I'm black. I didn't even understand the concept of racism in third grade. So um, but I but that carried with me for yeah. years and years and years until like, you know, probably, you know, probably in my college years, I started thinking back like, man, that teacher was really racist, you know, (laughs) and then Obama, you know, got elected. I'm like, ah, maybe there's hope, you know, that someone looks like me in the white, in the white, white house. So, so like, is, is there a way to better identify 
racist behavior or or define what racism is aside from lynching? Yeah, it's um I mean, it's interesting that point you make. So when Obama won the Iowa caucus in January 2008, he came out, and I'll use this phrase as the title of a chapter of my first book, Brown is the New White. In his first words in that speech, it says, they said this day would never come. Mm. And that it's because of this piece around people always thought that there would never be a black president. So I think, I remember when, like a formative experience for me uh, was the Free South Africa movement in the 1980s. And I remember um, well uh, Mandela being freed from prison and then him doing a national tour. Um, he came to the United States. I actually went to see him speak in Oakland. But he was on um, Nightline with Ted Koppel. And Koppel says to him, um, well, tell us about some of the indignities that you faced in prison. And that's the only thing I remember from this interview. One of the few, well, it's one of the few things I remember. And, and he says... The indignities are a diversion. And that really resonated with me because I think fundamentally, and I've used this line somewhat flippantly, that, you know, if I had my 40 acres in a mule, I don't care if you call me the N-word, right? <laughs> and so that issue on economic justice and economic equality, I think, is far more fundamental than the indignities, the individual interactions, et cetera. There remains a gargantuan racial wealth gap in this country where the average white family has close to 10 times more assets than the average black family. And then in many, if not most cases, white high school graduates do better economically than black college graduates. That to me is the should, needs to be the focus. We only have limited time, energy, and effort, you know, on one's life, anyways. And so, more so than trying to get different individuals to act better, which they should, I'm far more interested in this question around what are we doing to address the racial wealth gap and to pursue uh, economic equality and justice. And then I think it'll be less impactful the different, you know, indignities that we face from different individuals. Um, but the fundamental point is how do we strengthen the economic position um, of people in the country? Mm, yeah. So, 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 so racism isn't, is it, is it a problem to be solved or a problem to be aware of um, that has a lot of different levers you have to pull to keep it from, you know, ending up, you know, where we're owning people again. I would argue to be aware of in that. Um, and even if you think about the, like you talk about the civil war and re reconstruction, and the aftermath. So it wasn't just a question of um, being mean to black people. I mean, it's a question of owning black people, stopping that. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> But they moved on to 40 acres and a mule for economic sufficiency, to creating uh, free public education so people could actually be educated, to creating uh, uh, public health care so people could be uh, healthy. So it's create, creating a lot, getting people of all races, although it took a while to bring down the gender line, to be able to vote. So creating a multiracial democracy. Those, to me, are the goals, but in a country where there's such a profound 
uh, persistence of white nationalism and white supremacy and white uh, fear and, re and, and resentment, you have to be race conscious. So it's something to be aware of as we move forward trying to create um, a multiracial democracy. Even talk about, you know, Rosa Parks, people talk about, you know, Rosa Parks, um, you know, wanted to be able to, for black people to ride the bus. But that actually wasn't, Rosa, it wasn't that black people should be able to ride the bus, it's so that everybody could be able to ride the bus. Mm -hmm. And so the obstacle we faced was the whites-only policy, but taking that down made it available for everybody. And that, I think, is how I think about the challenges ahead of us is race-conscious pursuit of opening up the society to be a true multiracial democracy. Mm, that, that's good. And, and, and I'm wondering, like, how, how, do you, how do you raise, you know, the race consciousness of, you know, whites or others um, to the degree that it will lead to action? Because I, I feel like, you know, when, when Trump got elected in 2016, um, there was a lot of people I know that were wondering how the heck could this happen, you know, citing a lot of Trump's racist rhetoric and whatnot, you know, but when I speak to some of my, my black friends, you know, they're, they're not surprised just like me. I'm like, yeah, of course, of course he got elected, you know, <laughs> like, and, 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 and I wonder like, like what, why, why do so many Americans feel like racism still isn't a problem in America when it, it clearly is? Well, I think it's a combination of, um, like I was saying about the distort public opinion piece, right? That, there was such a, a profound um, effort to sanitize and whitewash the the white supremacist history of the country, um, as well as to just outright uh, celebrate it in terms of all these Confederate monuments, which are still. I went to the Capitol and, and I was at the, in the, out in East in January. I went to the Capitol. I did a little short little video on uh, Instagram of um, there's these still have these monuments in the rotunda <laughs> of the Capitol mm -hmm. to uh, Confederate white supremacist mass murderers. They greet you when you walk into the Capitol. <laughs> yeah. And so that gets at this piece. And then there's, it, there's so much um, um, the breadth of the insecurity and um, kind of backlash when you kind of point something out or raise it. It's very ferocious from people in all of these different positions of power and influence. And, uh, and so it reinforces the view that racism is a thing of the past. It doesn't exist. Like, they, you know, the basketball, professional basketball associations, one of these uh, black uh, ESPN reporters says that raises the issue that perhaps the people are partial to, um, you know, Denver's center because he's white over the Philadelphia center who <laughs> mm -hmm. is black and makes that explicit. All hell breaks loose. Mm -hmm. So if you point out something, people have this immediate reaction. No, it's not that. There's other things, et cetera. And so that is so visceral for people and it makes it very hard, which is why the George Floyd thing was so powerful because it was like the one example we'd had in a very, very long time that you can't excuse away. Mm -hmm. But everything else gets excused away. So then people think that the racism is a very, very rare phenomenon in terms of manifesting itself as opposed to 
a regular phenomenon where you can't uh where the the top uh co the top black football offensive coordinator cannot get hired to be the head coach <laughs> every single year and all of these objectively lesser qualified whites get hired but that's not racist so <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, you know, it's it's like uh uh speaking of comedians, I feel like this is Dave Chappelle or somebody similar, but uh there is this this uh skit about um the the new little mermaid and how the the new uh you know uh little mermaid is is black mm-hmm. and how it was I mean, it was it, it it sparked a lot of outrage from right, right, <laughs> from right, from people right. that are used to just seeing a white little mermaid, you know, and, mm-hmm. and this comedian's like, really? Like, like, that's that's the thing, you know, that's upsetting you. Like, <laughs> like, she's still a mermaid, you know, she's still right, little. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. It's like, so the fact that you have like this human being under the water breathing, that's all like believable. Yeah. But the fact that they're black, that's what we're upset about. <laughs> You know, I was like, man, uh, and, 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 you know, like I, I, I do feel that, um, you know, at least in Virginia, um, that there have been some strides to, um, right wrongs, um, you know, uh, for better, for worse, Ralph Northam, you know, Ralph blackface Northam, you know, like, like he, you know, whether it was just like a, a an apology tour or whatnot, but, you know, he, he, he really made a, an effort to, to get all these these monuments down, which which mm-hmm. I can definitely applaud him for. Um, and Congress, you know, has, you know, passed bills to rename certain um, uh, military installations. Um, so so the one closest to me is Fort Lee. And and I, I remember I I I spoke with a, a congressman, Donald McKeachin, um, shortly before he passed. Um, and. Um, he was pretty instrumental in renaming it to Fort Greg Adams. He he knows, um, I think the the general, I think it was Greg, um, and um, and I was you know asking him his thoughts about it, and he he's like, yeah, it's time, you know, because it's it's Fort Lee, <laughs> you know, named after General Lee, uh, you know, and, and everything it represents, and here we are, a military installation installation that is praising the atrocities that this person um, committed. And, you know, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, changing the names of army bases. If that, if, if that's significant or is that as, as you, as you mentioned earlier, maybe just a distraction. Well, it's, it's both. It's, it's not insignificant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as significant as economic justice and equality, but it's not insignificant. So we had on the, um, podcast on the what was this two weeks ago 30th 23rd the uh, sixth uh, march 16th jennifer mcclellan mm-hmm. who replaced that congressman mm-hmm. and who is the the first black woman to represent virginia and so we closed the podcast talking about these monuments and so that robert e lee uh monument uh statue which would been it which had been in richmond was like what three stories high mm-hmm. yeah which went up 30 years before the lincoln memorial it was yeah. a very deliberate attempt on who they were going and they blocked the creation of Lincoln Memorial for as long as they possibly could. So she said she lived around the around the corner from that Robert E. Lee Memorial mm-hmm. and that she didn't even realize or appreciate until it came down how much of a weight it had been. Mm-hmm. And because that's one of the things I, you know, I, I try to, you know, 
uh, illuminate in my, in, in my my current book is talk about what are these monuments doing there in the first place, and how they pollute our public spaces because they're 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 you know testimonials to mainly white supremacist mass murderers, mm-hmm. and we're celebrating that. So both elevates and affirms that level of uh, superiority. And then people of color have to deal with that and face that every day. Right? There was a thing in um, Yale, right, where they had the um, uh, these paint, the stained glass windows mm. that perpetuated these slippers. And this one black worker couldn't take it anymore, and so he took his broom and he broke the glass. Right? <laughs> and so these things matter, um, and so I think we need to address them. And I think it's also helpful to do so explicitly is to challenge people and to force people to confront the reality of these issues, what these things stand for, and to make them go on the record around renouncing them. And that I um, talked to somebody, uh, I reference on this in my book as well, who was from Germany, and she had come to work in the United States. She worked at uh, this organization, Ashoka. And she was talking about how there, first of all, there are no monuments to Nazis in Germany. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense of national collective shame about the Holocaust. And she was pointing about there's not shame in this country. People do not feel uh, uh, sorry or regretful or anything wrong happened, et cetera. And so I think not just renaming these things, but doing so in a public and um, educational fashion helps to ultimately build support and understanding for a public Mm -hmm. policy agenda that gets at the legacy of that kind of racism and discrimination. Yeah, I can I can relate my so my my wife, who's white, actually. she actually majored in German studies and lived in German, Germany for several years. And um, her and I have had discussions about this, especially around the time of the monuments. And she said the exact same thing. She was like, yeah, no, like, like there is no promoting anything the Nazis did in Germany. Actually, like it can get you arrested. <laughs> you right. and, uh, so I, I, I do wish that. Uh, that was the same here. And, you know, and I, I, I should note, I did, I did recommend to Donald McEachin that, um, I could have saved the the military ton of money because I had recommended that we just renamed it uh, Fort Stanley after the uh, you know creator of Marvel uh, X Men stuff. I said, man, you wouldn't you wouldn't have to spend a dime like Fort Stanley. Just get the Lee, anyways. But <laughs> nobody listens to me, you know. So uh, <laughs> um, um, well, I, we did I, a school before, when I was in the school board in San Francisco. They were oh they wanted to rename. We did rename a school that was named after, it was called Douglas. And it was actually named after like a, uh, certainly a white general. Mm-hmm. And then the people who didn't want to rename it, they kind of say, oh no, it's not. It's it's named after Frederick Douglas, not <laughs> after this white general. <laughs> but the names were spelled different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, just just trying to save money where we can. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, political parties and, and Blacks, affixing themselves to specifically like, like the democratic party. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know, 60 years ago, um, you probably wouldn't have seen a whole lot of, uh, blacks, you know, subscribe to, you know, Dixiecrats or Democrats or, or what, what have you. But it seems like today, 
Democrats really kind of symbolize um, or at least promote social justice more so than the Republicans. And and I, I, I'm curious on, you know, like, why is that? And um, and then maybe kind of as a as a second question, like, um, what are your thoughts on black Republicans? Because there are, you know, quite a few of them. I mean, there's like Byron Donaldson, who, Byron Donald, who's um, the congressman out of Florida, um, you know, and that's sort of one one sort of category. Then you've got like the Michael Steele, who's also Republican, but I would say he's sort of cut from a different cloth. Um, so so can you talk a little bit about like, you know, race and and the two political parties, why one seems to cater more, better than the other? Uh, yeah, I, I think that the the best way to understand it and describe it actually is to look at the political parties and their relationship to white people. And then I would argue then that the behavior of black people is in response to that. Hmm. And so that originally the party, the political party that was went to war to defend the right to buy and sell black people and hold, hold us in slavery were the Democrats. And the Republicans were created largely, uh, in large part, as an anti-slavery party. And Lincoln was, you know, a Republican. Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. There's lar- largely progressive Republicans who drove the Reconstruction legislation. So I think that's an important context to understand: is that the party of white nationalism was originally the um, uh, the Democrats, and then as I use this phrase in the book, that as Democrats began to tiptoe towards embracing civil rights and racial equality, Southern whites sprinted to the Republican Party. And it was a very conscious effort on the part of the Republicans to woo the white nationalists and to woo whites who were afraid of what was happening within the country. And so uh, Truman uh, supported the Civil Rights Act in 48, which outraged the white nationalist. And so that's when the Dixiecrats, so Strom Thurmond, uh, the uh, predecessor to the um, current South Carolina uh, senator, um, Strom Thurmond ran as a Dixiecrat really to punish Truman for supporting the civil rights movement. And it was, but he was a, that was a, a, a splinter of the Democratic Party and largely the Southerners that were unapologetically pro-segregation, which meant being pro-white nationalist. And so you had that. And then Strom Thurmond explicitly led the exodus out of the Democratic Party in the 60s and cut the deal with Nixon, with Nixon in 68 and says, I will, uh, to Nixon, I will vouch for you with all of my pro-white supremacist credibility um, if, um, you know, you kind of give me influence and power in your, in your operation. And so he did, he went around and he told all of the different, um, uh, folks that, uh, Nixon and the Republicans were on their side. And then that culminated, I would say crested in 1980 when Ronald Reagan got the Republican nomination, launched his general election campaign in Mississippi, in the very county where Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney had been killed, the civil rights workers, in 1964. And he used the phrase of how he so he, uh, supports uh, states' rights, which was you know code words and language for 
white nationalism. And so Reagan sent the very strong signal that the Republicans were the home of white nationalists mm-hmm. and people who wanted think wanted this to be a white uh, wanted this to be a white country. And then Trump took this to a whole other level. So in that context, I would argue that black voting, which remains ninety percent supportive of Democrats, is frankly more of a reaction and a, a recognition that the Republicans are the home of white nationalism. It's like, well, we're not going to go over there. And I fundamentally think that most Democrats remain too timid and fearful of too closely embracing and and uh, allying with African Americans in general and, an Af- and a public policy agenda that deals with racial um, equality within the country. We still, we cannot even pass a bill to study the question of reparations, not to give anybody <laughs> reparations, yeah. just to study what is owed to black people for centuries of creating wealth that was taken by whites. Mm. And we can't even pass a bill. And then the president won't even create a, a, a commission to study it. It doesn't require any vote at all. <laughs> and so the timidity, so in that context of fear and timidity and tentative, tentativeness on the Democrats' part, it's clearly not that the Democrats are so strong that that's <laughs> why black folks are voting for them. But black people are very clear that the Republicans are pro-white nationalists, and it's a reaction against that. Mm-hmm. And then black Republicans, I don't know. I mean, it's like, um, um, you know, it's it's black people sold black people into slavery. Black people didn't want to leave the plantation. Malcolm talked about house Negroes and field Negroes. And so there's always been some small percentage of black folks who are aligned with the system that was oppressing our people. Mm. So I think the expectation that we have would have 100% um, agreement. 6% of black people voted against having the country's first black president. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm curious what was going through their heads. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to say, are you waiting for the next black president? <laughs> In terms of, but it's never going to be 100%. But I think the fact that you have 90% of African Americans voting consistently Democratic is a very lasting and uh, profound uh, statistical reality. Yeah, it's so, it's so true. Uh, and, and, and I, I'm curious, you know, you, you, you bring up President, um, you know, Biden or President Trump. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about Obama and whether or not he, he missed an opportunity to, um, help, I don't know, help Americans engage with, um, sort of our, our racist background, our racist history. Um, cause I mean, I, I remember when he got elected, I was super stoked, um, very excited, um, I still think he was a good president. I mean, he 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 did some things. I'm sure that, yeah, I I would have been upset if if another party president did it. Um, <laughs> but but like, but I think I think the the good outweighed the bad, in my opinion. I mean, I'm a Democrat, so like you probably expect for me to say that, but um, but I do think he kind of missed the mark just as being the first black president to 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 really I don't know uh, address that issue. Like, what what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, this is something that you know Susan and I used to talk about in terms of we met him first in 2005, and then I remember her saying that yeah, you know, she would say that he's not that progressive. Right? <laughs> I remember saying that. That I remember saying somebody I was like, 
I think Obama is as progressive as you can possibly be and still get elected president as a black man in America. Mm. And so I think there's that. And then just this whole thing about the backlash, the refusal to acknowledge racism. So to to even say that the police going into the home of probably the preeminent black scholar in the yeah. country at Harvard <laughs> yeah. and arresting him was stupid. Mm-hmm huge backlash. And you mm-hmm. had to have a whole beer summit around the yeah, whole, yeah, yeah. you know, Henry Louis Gates thing, et cetera. So that shows how hard it was to do any of that. Um, in some ways, I actually think that a white person or president can do more on this regard, kind of with Nixon going to China piece because they're mm-hmm. more inoculated. So, you know, there's always more, I think, I, it could have or should have been done. But you know what's not going to happen and certainly didn't happen from 2009 to 2016 <laughs> is no teachers in Los Angeles said to their students that you can't be president because you're not black. Mm, yeah, black. that that's true. Now, um, I, I, I'm curious, like, so, so you and I both recognize that minorities um, don't do as well financially, socially, what have you, um, than, than say like our white counterparts. Um, but you know, you yourself is probably, you know, an outlier you're successful. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you're not, you know, you're not poor. Um, I, I do. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't make money off podcasting. I have a day job, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, I consider myself somewhat successful and, and, you know, I know people that will point to yourself point to me and say, yeah, like how, how can black people be doing so poorly? Like, just look at Steve, look at Will, you know, like, like black people aren't as bad as, as they, they want us to, to believe. So like, what, what do you, what do you say to, to something like that? Well, it's, it's, I'm trying to think what's like the right, I went to see, uh, this is probably not the right answer to this, but I, went to, I remember seeing Dick Gregory speak when I was in college and um, he came to speak at, at Stanford and I was down there and he says that, you know, so we always have to set our best to deal with their worst. And um, he says true equality would be when we get to be mediocre also. Right? <laughs> and so, and if you can take the, uh, not exactly a racial Piece, but in terms of the, the racial voting part, I mean, to look at the uh, Georgia uh, Senate election, mm-hmm. and so you have a sitting United States senator, the literal heir to Martin Luther King, uh, in terms of Raphael Warnock, running against one of the least qualified, most scandal-ridden candidates probably to ever run for Senate in terms of Herschel Walker. Didn't even <laughs> live in Georgia to start with, had it's been true. a football player 40 years ago. Mm. Multiple domestic violence uh, uh, incidents, not just allegations, holding a gun to his ex-wife's head, multiple unacknowledged uh, children, and yet 80-plus percent of white evangelicals voted against the minister, right? And so <laughs> I and, know. And, and uh, Walker almost won that race. Mm-hmm. So the mountain for African-Americans to – be able to get to some level of success is so much higher. And so you can't just point to, oh, well, those people scaled the mountain, whereas other people don't have a mountain at all, mm-hmm. and right, in terms of being able to move in that in that regard. 
So I would say that. And then I would fundamentally look at just some fundamental like statistical realities. And so for one is this issue around the, the racial wealth gap and would push people on this. So I was at um, Ben Carson when he was running for president 2016 and mm-hmm. conservative black uh, tennis. And he was talking about, well, my mom was poor and then, but she worked hard. And so she didn't, you know, take government handouts. And I always wanted to ask him, why was your mother poor? Right? Was she lazy? Is that how she got into poverty? <laughs> mm-hmm. But if you push it, then it's a legacy of slavery and then the post slavery um, segregation and economics. So, why is that a s- acceptable starting point that we have to start in that point? I try to break, break this down in like my first book, Brown's the New White, about it would take like a few hundred years if you take the racial wealth gap. And the amount of assets that African-Americans have and the amount of assets that whites have, and you just put it into the stock market, would never catch up. And so how do you actually kind of factor in that regard? And then you just look at all these different, um, you know, situations in terms of hiring and even law, all these different, like, tech companies that sprang up from scratch, and they're, like, largely in dominant white. And then you look at the uh, uh in the Fortune 500, how few of them are actually run by different people of color. And I like to push people on the gender front in terms of like the amount of uh, uh, venture capital money that goes to female-headed firms. It's like 5% or something in that, in that realm, whereas women are the majority of people in the country. And so then you have to – you can only call, draw two conclusions. The women just aren't interested in starting and running companies or – that I guess do things that they're not good at it, and they're far worse uh, and less talented than uh, people of uh, uh, than men, or you have to acknowledge that there's some bias in the system, and so I think comparing five percent to fifty two three percent can help people get there. Mm-hmm. And if you think there's some bias in the system towards women, then why wouldn't you acknowledge that there's some bias in the system towards people of color? And then that explains the racial wealth gap, which you can't unexplained by pointing to a small number of success stories of people who over who scaled a higher mountain it doesn't mean that the system is accessible and fair um and and, and works for people mm. right. um so my 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 last question to you and and i i definitely appreciate um all your input this this has been great that time's actually kind of flown by um it what's the roadmap um to you know change the racial inequality narrative uh, in this country? Or is there a roadmap? So I would say two things to it. For one is, I talk about how the, uh, you know, I described in my book how there's uh, been a Confederate battle plan, so how they've, you know, continued to fight um, for this to be a white nationalist country. The second half of my book, I talk about there's a liberation battle plan. And it's five case studies of places that have transformed, uh, certainly politically, um, over the past, uh, uh, you know, 10 to 20 years. And so fundamentally, I would, the core elements of that are finding in back what I call level five leaders. And so it's people like uh, Stacey Abrams, it's people like Tran Win in Virginia, runs New, Maj- New Virginia Majority, who are uh, personally humble, but extraordinarily uh, ferociously dedicated towards doing the work and building an organization and making a difference finding and supporting civic engagement organizations that expand the electorate 
And so that's what uh, all of these places have done. So it happened in Georgia, it's happened in Virginia, et cetera. Um, and then making sure those organizations have <clears throat> detailed data-driven plans and are playing the long game. So fundamentally, it's about expanding democracy to get this to be a multiracial country so that as public policy priorities are focused on meeting the needs of the majority of people. And you know that, that that's a key to changing the country by the ferocity with which the right wing is trying to suppress people from voting. Everything that expands voting, they try to you know tamp that down. So fundamentally, it's about getting as many people as possible to vote. And so that, to me, is what um, has led to the getting off of the white nationalist track we were on under Trump, right? So like I say, I'm, you know, my wife was the first supporter of Stacey Abrams in 2012. We supported her for a decade. She came to us in 2013. It says, there's a million and a half unregistered people of color in Georgia. I'm going to go register them to vote. And she, that's the work that she did methodically. And that's what led to Georgia flipping in the presidential race, to which Biden was like, that's not one we expected. <laughs> and that's what led to increasing the electorate to flipping the whole United States Senate. So all the public policies coming out of the government um, are far have been far more progressive than they otherwise would have been. But all of it comes back to finding the leaders, building the organizations, and increasing the number of people who are voting. That, to me, is the fundamental piece. Then we will get to the have the elected officials who want this to be a multiracial democracy and you know, advance and protect policies to have that occur. Mm, wow, that that that's a that sounds like a pretty good game plan. Uh, and and uh, I hope we're successful in 2024. So I guess we will uh, we will see. But um, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Steve, uh, for spending some time with us. Where 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 can people uh, follow your work? Um, check out your book. Um, so democracyandcolor.com is the uh, media or uh, the um, multiracial progressive media organization I created. We do a weekly newsletter um, every week. That's We do a podcast every two weeks, Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. So you can find out about all that at democracyandcolor.com. You can sign up to get on our newsletter at democracyandcolor.com. And that's the best way to stay in touch with what we're up to. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, thank you again. Um, this has been super enlightening, educational for me. Um, I really appreciate your time. This, is, this has been great. Um, so um, thank you to all of our listeners and our viewers. And uh